having the passion and the resilience to be able to try anything and simultaneously being able to balance in your head the reality that exists around you. When I see great founders and great CEOs and leaders, it feels like they can simultaneously have this unbounded passion that helps motivate people around a mission and yet simultaneously be super aware of all the ways that they might fail and not just only be in love with their own idea. And I think that that is the ultimate sort of place to get to. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. With a confidence he attributes to his relatively free-range childhood, Chris Gibson has followed his instincts and his heart, stepping away from the MD-PhD program in which he's enrolled to co-found and lead Recursion Pharma, one of the buzziest companies bringing AI to drug development. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, David. Yes, Lisa? I understand a former mentor of yours recently had an exciting promotion. Yes. Um, So I'm basically... Thrilled, like the, you know, sort of good things happen to good people. So my clinical mentor um, at Mass General um, was uh, Ann Klebanski, who sort of led the neuroendocrine unit. You know, really big pituitary expert, um, just a good, grounded person. Great clinical mentor, great research mentor. It's just, just sort of like an all-around rock star. Just like sort of did well and did good, and the whole thing. And was what, recent, what has she been promoted to do? She has been promoted to be a CEO of Partners Healthcare. Lovely. Which is kind of a big deal. So I'm, I'm first thr- woman in charge of that organization. I bet. I bet that that's true. Um, but I think that what's sort of interesting is like that is true. The reason that she is great for the role um, is because she's an amazing person and leader of men and women. Um, you know, again, she was my clinical mentor in clinic. Um, I do not believe I've represented my gender very well. <laughs> but, um, but no, but she's just, just a great person, and it's sort of so nice to see. Um, do you think she'll make big changes? That's a good question. I think that she'll bring her experience. You know, she's been part of the system for mm-hmm. a long time. She sort of understands deeply where there are opportunities, mm-hmm. and she definitely has sort of a patient-centric and sort of a mentor view where I think if anyone can sort of bring change from the inside, she's likely to do it. So That's I'm awesome. so thrilled for her. Well, good luck and for her. And for partners for having the wisdom to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to recognize her abilities. And speaking of abilities. You bet. I am, we, are, we are delighted to welcome today's guest, Chris Gibson, one of my very favorite entrepreneurs, who's pursuing a fantastically ambitious vision while remaining almost preternaturally down to earth, as I'm sure you and our listeners will immediately appreciate. I also think his journey is a captivating combination of some strategic career planning and some decisions and choices that clearly weren't. So with that, uh, the bar said suitably high. Welcome to our show, Chris. We are so delighted to have you join us. What a pleasure. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Cool beans. So Happy Saturday Chris, morning. Chris, right. Chris, <laughs> That's you right. Grew up, you grew up in, Port, in uh, Portlandia, in Portland, Oregon, and you learned about entrepreneurship in an up-close and personal fashion from your dad. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I, I think the official timing is that my dad uh, left Intel and started a company with, with I think, 14 other folks uh, when I was 
two weeks away from being born. Uh, so for the first 10 or 12 years of my life, um, you know, there were, there were, uh, there was me and then there was his, his, uh, company. And I got to see, uh, at the time from a, a lens that I never thought would reflect in the way it does now, um, but see what it's like to go through a lot of that. And you mentioned that you sort of got to understand life, um, at a high growth, I mean, it was a computer company, but in a high growth company, what were, what, what was that like sort of at a, at a, at a up close level? What were, were the, very much sort of like living on the edge where you sort of see the growth opportunities, but then also how scary it was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, growing up my, uh, I think I was interviewed once when I was like four or five for some video they were doing and they asked me what my dad did. And I said, he types a lot. Um, and it turns out that's still pretty true today. I bet that's what my kids would say. But I also saw, you know, the, the stress in his face, um, I remember pretty poignantly um, that they had to do layoffs at, at one point, and uh, he and many others at the company reduced their salary, uh, I think, all the way down to a dollar or something. I mean, they, it was, but just seeing the stress in his face uh, that comes with some of the natural patterns of, of growing a company and taking risks and also not seeing him a lot because he was on, he was on the road a tremendous amount as, as they took that company public. Um, you know, those were patterns early on that felt normal and natural to me because that's all I knew. Um, but uh, I think I reflect a lot on them today because we had, uh, we had my first child, my wife and I, about uh, a year before I started recursion. So there's uh, some, interesting, uh, some interesting patterns there. So yeah. what was the big lesson in retrospect that you learned from your dad that you take with you into your entrepreneurial endeavor? I think at the end of the day, um, the obvious example is that it's all about the people. Um, and, it, and that's really the key. Um, you know, even with my young eyes, seeing him interact with folks uh, and even now having an angel investor uh, in recursion who became who, who worked for my dad at that company mm -hmm. has now went through SoftBank, ended up becoming a very well-known VC um, and now sort of, you know, putting money into recursion on our own merits because he believes in what we're doing. But hearing the stories of how everybody worked together back in the day um, and the trust and, uh, uh, and sort of relationships that they all had. Um, I saw that constantly growing up from the phone calls that he's still, he's on a bunch of boards now and I hear it and it really, at the end of the day, is about the interaction between people and the relationships you have with really intelligent, great people that you bring into the company. And so I take that with me uh, as much as I can. Was your child that you had a, a girl or a boy? I have two boys, a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Interesting. And do you take them to the office and use them in marketing campaigns? I do not do that. I don't even remember the circumstances of why I was in this thing. It was not broadly distributed. Uh, uh, but yes, no, they, they stay out of the marketing campaigns. Chris, the other thing that comes up that, that uh, I'm sort of struck by in the way you describe this is, um, uh, you know, it, it seems like your dad really grew and you grew up with a real sense of what I, I guess Talib would call, would call skin in the game. Um, um, uh, uh, sort of rereading that that book of his lately because I think it has um, uh, mm. enormous amount of bile aside um, some uh, actual relevance um, and how when you know when there's real personal stake it's and it's very different than sort of if you're essentially a factotum um, and I think to this point um, one of the things that really struck me is that many kids today right they seem to be raised in an almost hermetic fashion to avoid uh, mm. potential harm but this may also uh, kind of make them more fragile or less robust. 
um, and uh, may remove important growth opportunities. And I say this as a total hypocrite, incidentally. Um, but um, <laughs> which I Myself as well, actually. David, David's kids live in a plastic bubble. <laughs> uh, no, not entirely, but, but more so than, than, than they might. Um, and as you've described it, this wasn't your problem, that you enjoyed somewhat of a free-range childhood. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think it's pretty remarkable I survived childhood in many ways. Um, not that my parents didn't, you know, love us or give us tons of attention. They did. But we were, my brother and I were afforded a tremendous amount of independence to do things that were important to us um, and to do things, I think, that had real risk. And of course, uh, you know, it was it was not like my parents didn't care if I was on a hiking trip and there was a, a steep edge on the side of the trail. My mom would inevitably say like, hey, you know, be careful, get back from that edge. So, uh, but at the same time, I remember, you know, doing 40, 50, even an 80 mile bike ride when I was like 10 or 12 years old, completely by myself out into kind of the Eastern parts of Oregon. Um, I wanted to buy a hamster at one point and my parents were not supportive, but I had earned enough money. And they said that if I could conduct the, uh, the acquisition and the care of the hamster in an independent way, that that was fine. So I loaded (laughs) up a hand truck. Um, I loaded up a hand truck and walked the three miles to the pet store with this, you know, like UPS style brown hand truck, bought the cage, bought the hamster, all the things that you need from, you know, uh, what I had earned doing work and then walked the three miles home and and set it up. Um, You know, when I was maybe 14, I think my parents. Wait, wait, um, wait. I got to, I got to dig into this hamster situation. So you, you managed to independently take care of acquiring the hamster. Did you actually yeah. take care of the hamster yourself? Well, so the hamster didn't make it uh, a very long time. It turns <laughs> out they're kind of mean little creatures. I didn't do anything harmful to the hamster, but for some unknown reason, the hamster didn't make it. Um, and later I got into a different, uh, a different set of uh, pets, um, which, is, which is pretty nerdy. Uh, but the hamster was a very uh, a relatively short-lived creature at our house, unfortunately. His name was Speedy, but, or him or her. Uh, the and name you're was confident Speedy. your parents didn't cause Speedy's demise? I, you know... <laughs> I can't imagine they would have done anything named, to hasten named, Speedy's named, death. Named, named for his presumptive lifespan. <laughs> um, but, um, but then what was, I, I want to just go back to this sort of, what was it? It was this crazy story where you're saying where like they were, first of all, going to like you're, there's some campsite in rural Oregon. And like I couldn't sort of figure out if it was, you know, um, if it was sort of, if the bigger danger was sort of the uh, all the survivalist or whatever it was, but they were going out there and you said, okay, see ya. And like you biked the 80 miles to get there and said, you know, see ya on the flip side. Yeah, that's right. And this is back before cell phones. Um, and there were times when I had flat tires and, you know, you kind of had to um, walk your bike to the nearest store and call on a payphone and get help. And, uh, you know, I think these are the sorts of things that made me independent. And again, I think there was real risk in, in many of those things, especially at the ages I was doing them. Um, but I sort of learned uh, that I had uh, what it took inside to be able to really do anything that, anything that I put my mind to. We, we get to see an expression of this because then you went to college. You went to college at Rice pursuing bioengineering and management. Right. Um, and um, uh, what were you thinking about that dual pursuit? How did you sort of land on that? So it was clear to me that P 
people who served as translators between specialties um, had a really, really unique uh, superpower in many ways. And I'd seen this in my father, um, who was an electrical engineer and did business. Um, and it felt like sort of the, the computer electrical engineering revolution had largely happened, maybe, you know, 80% of it at the time. And what felt like it was going to be the next revolution was bio. Um, and so I, I strategically put myself at the intersection of business and uh, bioengineering at the time, mostly tissue engineering, um, which, which Rice is very well known for. Uh, and it felt like, um, as, I, as I told you, Dave, um, I'm not really a, a master of any trade, but a jack of many. Uh, and, and that's where I found my sweet spot was being able to have a conversation with someone in business or have a conversation with an engineer and understand them, really hear them, really hear their perspectives, but then to synthesize that information in a way that I think sometimes really deep technical folks uh, or really deep business people cannot do. How do you think that's shaped the arc of your career? career, that communication skill? Because I agree, that's really important. And But it, it leads people down different paths sometimes than they might otherwise have gone. What do you think, you know, has led, it has driven for you? I mean, I've meandered. At one point, I was <clears throat> going to take those skills and, and become a surgeon. Um, and certainly communicating really complex ideas to patients who in some cases may not be able to appreciate some of the complexity, but have every right to understand the implications of, of the sorts of things you might be determining with them and uh, helping them make the decision that's best for them. That's, that's where I was headed. Um, but there was always this sense that I wanted to operate at this intersection in wherever the place was where I could have the most impact. And I realized what that place was while I was pursuing this MD-PhD and realized that it was possibly not uh, in being a surgeon. Uh, and that's what led to the start of recursion. Well, before we get to recursion, I think what was so interesting, I kind of feel like it's interesting because you sort of had a strategic, in a sense, approach where you're going to do business and bioengineering and management. But then sort of things evolved. How you, um, you it's not like one of the most important things that happened for you in college was that's where you met your um, uh, future wife. Um, and then sort of following her, it sounds like you went to medical school at San Antonio. Um, uh, uh, or no, or wait, no, she or you went to medical school? That's right. She, she went to medical school in San Antonio. Yeah, I, I guess uh, all my best laid plans were uh, were uh, reordered when I met my wife, and she went to medical school in San Antonio. I followed her there, um, starting a PhD. Um, I saw the um, the joy that came to her face every day after she had patient interactions, and it actually convinced me to uh, convince the San Antonio MD PhD program to take me on. Um, so I sort of followed her into medicine. Uh, and then when she completed medical school and was looking for a residency at the intersection of genetics uh, and neurology, uh, which was, was her area of specialty, actually her home of Utah uh, is really well known for uh, the, the study of genetics. Yeah. And, and that's where she chose to go. Um, and uh, about a year later, after flying back and forth uh, once a month from medical school and having this long distance marriage, uh, I, I transferred into the MD PhD program at um, uh, in San Antonio, and then almost immediately after that, within a year, then you um, then you fought, then you talked your way into a second MD PhD program at Utah, where you worked for Dean Lee. Well, I was right. say it's unusual to hear. Well, that, obviously, those are the communication skills at work, right? But I guess it's unusual to hear, in my experience, 
uh, stories where men follow their, you know, their wives, career-wise, you know, mm-hmm. from place to place. I think it's usually the other story um, that is more typically heard. So, Even Susan Desmond Hellman told us that she yeah. was initially the trailing spouse. Right, right, right. So, I, you know, I just wonder yeah. about that. I mean, is that was that an easy decision for you to make? Was that a hard decision for you to make? Uh, it was an easy decision for me to make. Um, I prioritized my my family, which was just my wife and I at the time, uh, above any other pursuit. And um, you know, I I thought that there would be would be some real costs. Frankly, I was not. Uh, people who knew me knew that I wasn't really thrilled to move to to Utah. It's a beautiful place, but I didn't know as much as I probably should have at the time. Um, but I wanted to support her, and and that's always she's she's a brilliant physician. She does an amazing. She actually runs the ALS clinic. Uh, at the university now, and she does a lot for a really uh, a group of patients with mm-hmm. unimaginable un- unmet need, yeah. um, and that was an easy thing to support. Though, of course, there were some real costs, including starting a PhD over again mm-hmm. uh, in a laboratory, frankly, that I had no interest in joining at the time. Um, yeah, so. tell us about this. This is so Dean Lee's kind of kind of a big deal, um, but not in tissue yeah. engineering. Um, but uh, so, could you tell us about what he what he did, and then or, or what the work of the lab involves, and then what you were, and then sort of how you approached it? It sounds like you were insanely intense, as in fact one does get during their PhD. You threw yourself into your work. You said for something like a period of five years, you rarely slept, which is not that unusual. But you wound up cranking out something like twelve papers, which is pretty impre- exceptionally impressive. Can you tell us a little bit about that time in your life? Yeah, certainly. So I was doing tissue engineering with a, a well-known woman in the field named Reta Bizios in San Antonio and ultimately made the decision for my marriage to move to Utah. Um, I was prepped on, on meeting this really intense guy named Dean Lee who ran the MD-PhD program and a variety of other things. Um, and I went in and we, we talked for maybe a couple hours the first time. Um, and essentially, uh, as a bioengineer, I had a very different perspective uh, to what he and his team were working on. Uh, they were essentially at the intersection of cell and molecular biology uh, and working on vascular stability from the perspective of uh, using genetic and molecular tools to understand the key pathways that regulate why our blood vessels uh, leak or don't leak. Um, and the way I answered questions was, I think, pretty foreign to him. And at the end of that conversation or the next day or something, he essentially said, um, you, you can join the MD-PhD program at the University of Utah. I'm pretty sure he, he just decided that by himself, um, but you need to join my laboratory. And frankly, um, one of the things I just, yeah, one of the things I despised most at the time was these super simplified diagrams where people would draw sort of one protein with an arrow to another, with an arrow to to another, um, and that would be biology. And it was massively reductionist. And it just didn't, it didn't like appeal to me. And at the same time, spending a couple hours with Dean, it immediately became obvious that I would learn more in a few years with him than probably anyone I'd ever met in my life. And that learning again at this intersection, even though I didn't love genetics and molecular biology, learning at the intersection of what I did and what they all were doing, and some of the people in that lab were incredible, was going to be a huge opportunity. And while we cranked out, and I should be really careful, I was not first author on all those papers, and the vast majority of the work was done by by others, but I was privileged enough to actually work on multiple different projects, collaborating with multiple different labs. And I think it's because I was serving in many ways as this, uh, as this translator uh, between the engineering approach and the more traditional biology approach. And what's so interesting to me is it sounds, 
it it sounds like um you know you know just all these publications you know it sort of uh, has a has a uh, feel of success to it but yet you told me that one of the most important lessons you learned in graduate school was from a failed experiment successful in the academic sense in that you published it but failed in that you thought you had identified a promising treatment and then found out that you didn't can you um, elaborate and talk about how that failure led to your subsequent company formation? Absolutely. So uh, the laboratory had worked on a specific genetic disease called cerebral cavernous malformation, or CCM for short, for probably a decade. They helped discover some of the original genes, and then they built the mouse models that I think are sort of gold standard today for uh, at least two of the three genes for that disease, um, and understood the molecular and cellular biology of the disease, and ultimately decided that there was this activation of this one pathway that, that was driving the disease. And we took a very safe, generally safe, well-known molecule uh, called simvastatin that's known to inhibit this pathway in a somewhat indirect but, but, but pretty robust way. Um, and we treated statin, animals with right? it. It's just like a statin, right? Yeah, exactly. And this is, you know, we are an academic lab. Our goal was to find something that could be translated to patients quickly, you know, not to make any money, just to get something to patients. And I think that, that'll come back and play uh, in the story of recursion. But ultimately what we found, and there's lots of reasons why this could have been. It could have been that our dose was off. It could, there's, a, there's a myriad of reasons. But we uh, looked at the animal model data, and I still remember that lab meeting because everybody was flabbergasted when um, the tr- animals treated with statin actually trended towards, it wasn't statistically significant, but close to trending towards being worse um, after this five-month-long in vivo study. Um, and I think for folks in the lab, you know, Dean, obviously, Kirk Thomas, who made the first knockout mouse with Mario Capecchi um, and was on the, the Nobel Prize winning paper, was, was in Dean's lab at the time. These people had been humbled by biology many, many times. Here I was, this arrogant young, you know, scientist. And this, you know, lots of things go wrong in your PhD. But this was a really big, you know, this was like, we were pretty sure and we were really wrong. Uh, And that was was this moment of humbling. Revenge of the hamster, do you think, you know? You you know, you might be right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. I always wonder. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I, I always wonder about this jump you have to make between, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I observe you know, this world from from the outside. I always wonder about this jump that you have to make from animals to people and, and how we even come close to thinking that's a good idea at times, you know, because it's so obviously different organisms and so um, hard to generalize. And yet what what alternative is there really? I mean, it's just really, a, a, I think, that's the a pretty good of, introduction. So what alternative yeah. is there really, yeah, Chris? Yeah, the story of so many failures. If only there was something, some approach that tried to bridge <laughs> this difference. <laughs> So what we noticed, uh, what we noticed was that, um, you know, uh, Stephen McKnight had just given this talk where he talked about a phenotypic screen in animals. Um, I think this was published in Cell or something like that in a neurodegenerative state. Um, and you couldn't even tell, looking at the, the images of these mouse brains, you couldn't even tell, uh, like, sort of positive and negative control. And here we were with this observation that when you modeled this disease in human cells, and I think there's actually a pretty important piece of starting in in, in, in in human biology and not starting with rodent biology, but when you in human cells modeled this particular disease and you, and you took a, micro, a microscope and took images of the cells, that they looked really different. They, they just looked fundamentally different. We couldn't blind people in the lab because they looked 
they look so different. And so we, we sort of were sitting around the, the lab one evening after, I think after Stephen's talk and, and said, you know, we could probably do a phenotypic screen. And yeah, I think the traditional approach uh, that Dean's lab would have taken would have been to, you know, get some people on board who do these screens to, to do the screen, you know, at the time of, of repurposable marketed molecules, which was the, the place that we all were interested in uh, as academics. Uh, and then to probably score those sorts of things by hand or something like that. And as an engineer, I was like, yeah, we're going to look at thousands of images here. Why don't we sort of automate this process? And I actually started coding up uh, uh, some MATLAB to try and automate this process. And maybe two or three days into that, realized I was in way over my head because um, I'm a, a jack of all trades and master of none, especially coding, um, and, and found this software from uh, the Broad Institute by a woman named Ann Carpenter, who's actually still one of our advisors. Um, and it's Cell Profiler, and, and we ended up using that um, to train a very basic machine learning class to recognize images where the cells were predominantly healthy or the cells were predominantly uh, modeling this disease. We added thousands of drugs uh, at the time, mostly by hand, not using robots, which, which is a fun thing to add thousands of drugs by hand, um, and took images again and then asked the machine learning classifier which images looked, looked healthy. And the big breakthrough uh, moment was, uh, you know, I, I was going into lab meeting. I had spent a pretty good chunk of, of money money with my colleagues on this project. Uh, Dean, similar to my parents, gave us a lot of independence. We didn't need to really go to him for approvals. But I was pretty worried because when we took the drugs that, that people, we did sort of a head-to-head, -head, like people chose drugs that looked like they were working, and then the machine learning classifier picked drugs that looked like they were working. The ones the machine learning classifier picked, in some cases, looked uh, really really different, like the cells looked not like healthy or disease. And in some cases, they didn't look at all like healthy. They still look like disease. And I was actually very nervous that we'd gone down some path and, and wasted a good bit of money. Um, ultimately, though, I think to, to Dean and the lab's credit, they completed the experiment and we took the best 39 compounds or so from each of a human picked set and the computer picked set. And we put them into an orthogonal functional assay. So instead of looking at images, we now measured these electrical uh, uh, measurements in monolayers of these cells. And what we found was that one of the drugs picked by people, and it turned out to be symphostatin, uh, rescued that, that, that assay. But seven of the drugs picked by the machine uh, rescued that totally unique functional assay. And that was the aha moment where the computer was identifying things that had a much higher probability of being useful in this totally unique assay. And yet they didn't look to us like they were going to work. And that was the moment in my mind where I realized, and it seems so obvious in retrospect, especially with my disdain for these, these uh, very oversimplified pathways. But I realized how much of biology we as people just probably can't comprehend. We can't see in images. We can't understand the complexity of all the feedback loops. Um, and that was the first seed of, of recursion. I, I'm so struck by this because, you know, those articles that come out all the time about how 30% of doctors diagnoses are just flat out wrong in retrospect yeah. about, you know, something like 40% of the treatments selected are flat out wrong in retrospect. Um, now you're talking about even on the research side, the observations of scientists are just flat out wrong in retrospect comparatively. I mean, are we still back in the dark ages of medicine in some ways? Are we incapable of uh, yet uh, as, as scientists, as biologists, as physicians of, you know, really getting this right? And does that ultimately lead 
in some way, I, how do I say this correctly? I just worry about how this feeds so much of the AI work going on right now. Yep. Um, just drives to the, to the wrong conclusion. I mean, now you may be doing it a different way and in recursion sounds like you are, but I think this whole um, continuing revelation of how inaccurate the, the human ability to observe biology is uh, just really kind of scares me when I think about all of the advancement of science that we're trying to bring through right now. I agree. And, and I think it's, it's, it's not to take anything away from some of the miraculous work that has been done. You know, the work of folks like uh, Kirk Thomas and Mario Capecchi and others to do homologous recombination and to, to do knockout mice has certainly taught us tremendous amounts. The genomic revolution and our understanding of which genes are involved in which diseases. I mean, we have come a long way. And, you know, look at vaccines, for example, right? Like there are millions of people alive every year that would not have been without the advancement of science. So I don't want to take away anything from that. But if you read a lot of the stories, there's an awful lot of luck and serendipity. A lot of drugs on the market work in ways that we did not understand at all. I mean, statins are a great example. The number of mechanisms that statins work uh, on is very different from probably what we thought when, when they went through the FDA. And, and it's actually not that surprising, right? You, you think we're, we're a bag full of something like a trillion cells, Every one of those cells has, you know, something like 400,000 different proteins. There's, you know, 20,000 plus different genes. We, the complexity of the trillions of interactions that happen in every cell, every second, scaled all the way up to a human. Um, it's actually miraculous we've come as far as we have, but it's not surprising at all to me that we still have most of the way to go. And I think this is the great promise and the great danger of, of machine learning and AI, and that is that... Um, we may have to become comfortable as people with um, making progress in medicine, biology, and even other fields in the future that is beyond human ability to comprehend. Now, recursion is not at that point now. We're using machine learning and AI to help us find things that seem interesting and unexpected. And then we go back and try and understand how they work and build that narrative. Well, I wanted just to tie, I know we're, we, we don't have that much time left, but this is important um, to get to this. Um, I do want to talk about what your company actually does. Um, and to sort of yeah. note that while perhaps technically acknowledged it is not yet a unicorn, it carries a valuation that's closer to being a unicorn <laughs> than being zero. We'll put it, we'll, we'll leave it like that. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> um, you know, like kind of a big deal. Um, uh, you know, both, I, I guess I was going to ask both, how did that happen? But really, maybe you could just explain sort of the elevator pitch, sort of what it does. And, sure. um, uh, you know, I know that you sort of uh, birthed it kind of, I guess, through the Ignite program at Stanford. But if you could right. sort of give the, uh, you know, how it came to be and, and what you guys are sort of focused on in a concise way. Absolutely. So the, the whole story we just described is the perfect foundation for this. We basically came to this core conclusion that biology is massively complex. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Um, and that to truly understand it, you might have to operate at a different scale. You'd have to eliminate as much human bias as you could. And so the core idea for the company grew out of some time I, I spent at Stanford, um, some of my co-founders, and now all the amazing 150-plus employees we have. Um, and essentially what we've done is we've built a large room full of robots that do today about half a million experiments every week. And we use robots to do many of those experiments so that that data is reproducible, which it isn't always when, uh, when you know, Chris or Sally uh, are pipetting by hand. 
um, and we can do it at scale. And we generate from those experiments uh, about 65 terabytes worth of images of human cells. And these are just like the images that I took back when we were studying CCM. Um, and we ask the exact same question for some disease model of interest. If we apply now tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of molecules, can we identify one that makes six, specifically six cells look specifically healthy again? And actually now uh, we do that you know, every week across multiple disease models. Um, we've put two programs into clinical trials and have a couple dozen other programs moving through the pipeline in that direction. Um, but we also do the analysis using computer vision and machine learning. And so uh, ultimately the goal here is to embrace the power of machine learning on an in in excruciatingly curated data set. And this is so important. The data you put into machine learning is so important. Machine learning will cheat every chance it gets. And so we've decided it's worth spending all of the capital to build a data set that is designed specifically for machine learning um, to try and prevent things like overfitting. Uh, uh, and we try and find really exciting interactions between molecules and disease. But all along the way, we've made all this data relatable so that the experiments we do each week are not done in a vacuum. They actually aggregate now to close to three petabytes of these images. And we can actually start to train algorithms now on that entire data set and look for much more subtle patterns. And this is not yet a reality, but our hope for the future is that at the intersection of what we believe will be the largest sort of relatable, carefully curated uh, empirical data set of biology in the world, we'll be able to recognize interactions and patterns using machine learning that a human could never identify. And those will lead us to, to drugs that will one day really impact the lives of patients. So is this... <laughs> Is this the uh, research scientist version of being replaced by machine? I mean, will the PhD programs that you uh, went through uh, be obsoleted by stuff like this? I don't think so at all. I think I think for the coming decades, uh, machines simply make uh, each person much more uh, much more valuable. And and at 150 plus people, we're actually a pretty big uh, biotech, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the number of people we've hired versus some of these companies that have raised similar amounts of money working on one or two programs um, and are often much, much smaller, I would argue that the promise of both machine learning and automation, at least for the next few decades, and I think there are some existential questions after that, uh, right. but at least for the next couple of decades, it feels like we're going to actually just enable people to do more um, and not and, and move people to new jobs, of course. Some jobs will be taken away, but I don't think we're going to... But I think it's like, uh, a, I mean, think think being like a force enabler. I mean, enable instead of doing... Exactly. One thing at a time, you're able to sort do of it like electricity was right <laughs> many generations or, ago. Or having a PCR machine instead of someone having to do exactly that. Um, sort of two two I know we're almost out of time, but sort of two questions. One, a key issue that everyone always has with phenotypic screens, and I have explicitly seen this not not regarding any one individual company, but just right. when the concept in general of phenotypic screen comes up, what I hear universally from pharma people. Um, is how how do you deconvolute the hits? So you have some molecule that does something into some phenotype. People are like, you know, good for you, that's great, but that yep. doesn't really provide a path forward to, to come up with, to turn whatever your hit is because of the way it was discovered into an actual drug. I think that is that is the classical weakness of phenotypic screening. And it is why we have spent so much time and effort in hiring people around things like supply chain, which is not 
you know, necessarily the most exciting thing to make it so that the data we generate every week is relatable. And the, the critical piece there, and, and again, I'm not making the claim yet that we can identify how every molecule we test works, but because we've generated not just half a million experiments this week, we've actually generated half a million experiments with aggregate, which aggregate with 20 or 25 million experiments we've done in the past. And we'll be doing something like 25 million experiments every quarter within the next couple of years. We can actually then, we believe, compare how some molecule is, is changing a, a set, a, a biological state in some assay in a way that's exciting to us. We think it could be a potential treatment for the disease, but we can compare it to all that prior data. And we believe one day we'll be able to make really useful predictions about how it's actually working and what pathways it's targeting. And we can now do that for something like there's, we've built really strong patterns around something like 120 different well-known pathways. So for example, if we have uh, like an HDAC inhibitor, HDAC inhibitors give us very, very strong specific patterns that are unique from the pattern we see from any other inhibitors. And so if we have a novel molecule and it's inhibiting HDAC, we can tell, and we can tell with extraordinary precision. And as we keep building this library of data, we believe eventually we'll be able to do this for really novel mechanisms as well. And I think that's the promise of the company. The promise, the potential, and the hope is that we can use this relatable data set to one day get to the point where we can discover new medicines at scale quickly. We can understand both what they might do in a variety of disease states, at least at the cellular level, and also predict all the ways that they might cause a variety of liabilities or toxicities. And if you could do that, you could move drug discovery much more quickly. So Chris, just as a final question on the way on, on, um, uh, to wrap up today, what distinctive characteristics do you think you have that has enabled you to succeed? If you sort of had to summarize it, how do you think you've been able to, I mean, you're this, you know, you're a guy who's, you know, doing, you know, grad school, you know, doing this training, and now all of a sudden you're at the center of really one of the most rapidly growing, exciting companies around. What characteristics do you think you have that's enabled you to do this? Your secret sauce. So I think... I think a lot of people would answer that question with fearlessness, and the answer is that's absolutely not true. Uh, it's a family show, so I won't describe too, too ex- exactly how I feel, but this is, this is serious stuff. I am scared all the time. Um, any founder who doesn't have imposter syndrome is probably on the edge of destroying their company in, 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 unless they've done it many times before. It's really, you know, you're responsible for paychecks now for 150 plus people in their family. This is serious business, and we're doing experiments and human beings in the clinic. So I I would first say it's definitely not that. If there were two things that I, I, uh, you know, trying to not, you know, dive in too deep here, but I would say it's resilience and passion. Um, It's the things I learned as a kid, um, you know, being able to to get through any situation, even when it's hard, knowing that I can do that, uh, or that I can surround myself with people who can help do that. And that's really important. And the other is just passion and caring a tremendous amount. And frankly, those two things, I think, you know, they help you hire the smart people who can do many of the things that I never could. And your comfort probably at working at the intersection of domains. I think that's absolutely, absolutely. That's really, I, I, I really appreciate your answer because I think, you know, people rarely speak about the fear and the anxiety that they have and the imposter syndrome that they have, you know, even as very successful people. So i uh, much appreciated to, to hear you talk about that. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. I, I, uh, I really appreciate the time. 
right. Well, that he's such a fascinating guy. He's he's really uh, kind of kind of so down to earth, isn't he? Yeah, it's really. I love that. Like I said to him, I love that discussion at the end of how frightening it can be to 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 be an entrepreneur, especially in medicine. And I, um, you know, find that kind of uh, frankness to be rare. Uh, and I, I appreciated that very much. And I also appreciated learning after the fact that he did not share with us on the show that he's actually building a hamster model uh, on the medical side, too. And I think that's just damn funny. You can, yeah, yeah. I, I think we have to have a separate show, Lisa, devoted to your hamster issues. Um, but just to go back to what they're doing for a second, you know, on the one hand, there is so much hype about AI. Um, but on the other hand, what sort of also struck me is that in some ways, a lot of what some of the more serious people are doing, like him, like Daphne Kohler, which is very similar, mm-hmm. sort of essentially trying to do, you know, phenotypic readouts at scale you right. know, using robots using all this stuff but not for the sake of automation but for the sake of generating consistency right. there's still the challenge of how do you translate these you know c- models in cells that are still very reductionist right. into something that's sort of clinically meaningful and also how do you develop drugs because for you know these the, these companies are essentially being valued at the moment by tech VCs as if oh my god this is a transformative platform they're going to start you know churning out all of these profound new medicines and god bless i hope that that happens but for a pharma's perspective in general not for any one company it's sort of like okay you have some great new they almost i don't care how you got to the drug show, show me the data that any individual drug is likely to be effective in the ways that we can understand well i think it's so problematic the the funding that's going on because you know there's all what we always talk about. It takes a billion dollars to get a drug to market. These companies are getting taking a billion dollars to get a drug identified. <laughs> you know, well, several like, drugs. Yeah, you know, it's really or, may, or maybe it's several drugs. But how do we know they're all right. going to work? I mean, because we all know that they don't all work. Right. So I think um, it creates and amplifies the scale of the argument about the cost of drugs and the, you know, when you go all the way to the end of the cost of drugs to the consumer, I mean, it's really an interesting problem. But so I, I guess I would worry less that if they were successful, it's going to amplify the cost of uh, cost of drugs. I think the idea is whenever you have a new technology, initially it's expensive to kind of yep. get it in place. But then once you sort of have it going, ultimately the idea is that it can do things cheaper, faster and better. Agreed. So please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow the wonderful Lisa Soonan at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor and my employer, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Scenic Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Take care. Take care. <laughs>